All right. So hello, everyone, and welcome to the AI Stories podcast. I'm Neil Leiser. I'm a data scientist at IWOCA, and I will be your host. So today, our guest is Yan Su. Yan first did an MEng in civil and environmental engineering at Imperial College London. And during his MEng, he also did an exchange program at the University of California, Berkeley. He did a few internships in consulting and engineering. And in 2019, he actually joined DeepRender, a startup developing the next generation of video compression technology using AI, where he is now currently a senior machine learning engineer. So this episode is actually kind of a special one because Jan and I are both really good friends from uni. We did our bachelor together. And so I'm really looking forward to this conversation, which is going to be super interesting. We're going to talk about our studies at Imperial College London, the transition from engineering to the world of data science and AI, deep learning applied to video compression, but also give advice on how to progress in your career. So if you enjoyed the episode, don't forget to subscribe to my YouTube channel, AI Stories, and follow us, so me and Jan, on LinkedIn. All right, and let's start with the fun bit now. Hi, Jan. How is it going? <laughs> How are you today? Hi, Neil. Thanks so much for having me today, uh, for inviting me to your podcast. Uh, great one. I've listened to a couple of episodes so far, and uh, very interesting uh, people you've had on board. I'm humbled that I'm um, one of those myself. Uh, <laughs> and so, yeah, I'm look, really looking forward to our chat um, together, given yeah, given that you and I pretty much come from the same same suit. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm very excited for this. Thanks, man. Thanks. Yeah, looking forward to this conversation. And yeah, let's actually start with the bachelor. We both did the same bachelor. You come from Sweden. I think you grew up in Sweden, actually, and then moved to the UK and then decided to study civil and environmental engineering. So yeah, just why did you first decide to study civil engineering? Like, what was your thinking behind this? And yeah, why this bachelor? Um, yeah, so it's actually got a funny anecdote behind it. But I guess <laughs> to start off with, uh, it's pretty much the standard story, like any, um, like most engineering students I know, uh, super fond of subjects uh, in school, like maths and, uh, and, and physics. Um, sort of, I, I went to this um, um, natural science specialization type course in high school in Sweden. Um, and, and really, yeah, I got fascinated into um, in, I've always really had a, had a, had a knack for, for uh, uh, sort of phys- physical, so natural science um, subjects. And so I, uh, I knew that I want, wanted to do something in that space, um, but I also wanted to do something. I didn't want to, you know, um, <laughs> I didn't want to see myself being in the lab, you know, in um, uh, kind of without actually interacting with the outer world. So um, I wanted to do something applied and actually meaningful for um, the, uh, uh, the, the subject that I was uh, going to study. So the obvious choice was engineering. Um, I uh, thought of going abroad um, for, I had, I had plans on, uh, um, on studying abroad for during my sort of last year of high school. Um, I figured I wanted to sort of uh, reach out, expand my, my horizons a bit. And, and, act, and I, I felt more, I felt quite comfortable in there with the idea of going outside um, uh, Sweden and meet new people, meet different and meet different cultures. And so um, I, I started applying to some uh, places in the U S and the UK. And uh, uh, I ended up in at Imperial college, London. Um, so yeah. And you asked why civil engineering, um, yes. So specifically, uh, why civil engineering? The, uh, for me, it was actually a, a massive, uh, a, a massive translation mistake. Um, so in, in in Sweden, when you say the literal translation of civil engineering, uh, which is civil engineer, what you're referring to is a master's of engineering. So that means a four-year or five-year course um, in engineering. So you can be a civil engineer. In chemical engineering, you can be in, in mechanical engineering or computer computer science. Um, 
And so I didn't really clock that when I was applying to my two universities. So I, I, I picked up, I picked out of the list of, of imperial courses in engineering while well, there was civil engineering. So I was like, oh, okay, yeah, I mean, this is sort of what I wanted to do anyways, if I, if I, if had I applied to some uh, place in Sweden um, and I got in and, you know, I was quite baffled the first week when I walked into my first lecture of uh, geotechnics and soil mechanics and having to, uh, <laughs> and I realized then what civil engineering was actually a, specifically the engineering for civil structures, such as bridges and, and, and buildings and <laughs> infrastructure. So I was, Kind of um, a little bit taken aback there. Maybe I should have, you could argue that younger Jan should have done a bit better research. Um, but it was um, it was actually quite fun in the end. Um, I uh, um, then during the uh, the engineering course, which is a four year uh, four years integrated masters course, um, I, I, I realized very quickly that uh, I coding coding was um, what I really fell for. So uh, in civil engineering was um, the, uh, uh, we had this MATLAB course, MATLAB is this, um, this coding element in, in most of uh, civil and mechanical engineering. Um, every, every undergraduate in civil and mechanical engineering will have played around with MATLAB at least once in their lives. And so, uh, um, and so I, I realized quickly that was what I wanted to do. And so I started to dig much deeper into the, um, um, into the into the coding world and started to take courses on the side and uh, and and sort of eventually sort of tried to steer my route into um into sort of computer uh computer and software engineering and now in deep learning and ai so yeah so is, is that how you transitioned from civil or for engineering to data science and ai you first like got those coding courses and you got more and more interested in coding and I guess in AI and then you like slowly did the transition? Yeah. Um, I think as, as um, being in, um, in interested in coding uh, during the late sort of 2010s, uh, really when the AI revolution was kind of like kick, started to kick off, it was almost impossible not to realize that, uh, not to sort of notice that there was something going on around the spaces of artificial intelligence and machine learning. Um, and so uh, those things um, I, sounded quite interesting. They sounded quite important to me. And so I figured I needed to learn about them in order to um, stay, stay relevant with the, uh, uh, With the, with the current technologies. And so, yeah, I started to look into it. But, but at that time, it was more specifically just coding in general, just like playing around with Python and Java and, 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 and just getting a bit more uh, um, and doing like a few side projects on my own. So at that point, it was still quite, uh, I guess, the idea of, um, of, of uh, getting into the space of AI. Okay, so that's how you, you basically did some extra courses, did some side projects during your civil engineering studies, and that's how you started to learn about AI and machine learning. Yeah. All right. And so you, well, you've kind of done all this degree in civil engineering. Now you're interested in AI. So what do you think about this degree? Like, do you think it was worth it in the end? Or do you kind of think, oh, why did I do civil engineering? I should have done maths or something else. Like, what are your thoughts around this? Yeah, I guess. Um, so I think especially for, um, uh, for people who are not familiar with the UK uh, education, higher education system, is that once you've selected a course, you are pretty much fixed. You're pretty much sort of uh, predestined to a path. You can't really choose the, the courses, your curriculum in the same flexibility as, uh, for instance, what I did when I went to the United States from a year abroad. So, um, so yeah, I mean, I think I, I, I definitely could have used less time studying soil mechanics and concrete. Um, and I think, I, I believe I probably would, uh, would have achieved uh, a lot more if I uh, had gone to a pure maths or computing mm -hmm or physics course in terms of kind of where I am right now and what I'm doing. Um, but yeah, I mean, in, in, as a civil engineer, you also pick up a lot of transferable skills. Um, 
such as obviously you have basics of coding and and uh, and of course mathematics and statistics also fun fundamental uh, both for civil engineering and for machine learning. So a lot of the things that I see today are actually um, were, were, were taught in in a civil engineering maths course, for instance. So uh, and I just and also think just generally the idea of problem solving um, is is what you what what you eventually pick up from um, uh, from from your engineering course and which can be transferable to any domain uh, that you end up working with. Um, so absolutely, I would say that civil engineering was formative to, to a certain extent. Um, and I guess, you know, in the end, it's not, I, I, I realized kind of, you know, in retrospect, uh, I guess at the time I was a bit sort of, um, I was a bit um, disappointed in my choice during the time, but, Looking back now, um, I realized maybe it wasn't so bad as I probably had made it seem back then. You know, I, people always change their minds um, about the career during uni and, and, and afterwards as well. And so I guess um, ultimately, I think every experience is a, uh, is a worthwhile one, um, in my opinion. And I also had a great friendship group coming out of that degree, as uh, I believe uh, <laughs> you must understand quite well. Exactly. This wouldn't have recorded this episode without without this yeah this bachelor. But yeah, I also think like lots of skills are transferable, and like civil engineering really it teaches you how to solve problems in the end. And in AI and machine learning, that's also what you do. Yeah. You have a problem. You have some tools. Sure, you need to learn the tools, but in the end, you need to solve problems. And I think the engineering part was, at least for me, much more challenging um, sometimes than AI. So I, I feel, yeah, it was quite useful to go through those very challenging problems, solving them on your own with lots of rules, lots of things you need to think about. And mm -hmm. maybe it also gives you another perspective on AI and machine learning compared to someone who did computer science or math. So I'm yeah quite happy with the bachelor. Although if I had to redo my life again, I would have chosen maybe something different. But yeah, yeah. that sounds, sounds like a familiar. I've, I've probably said those exact same words. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah, sounds good. Um, yeah, the only problem is I can't redo my life at the moment unless you come up with some algorithm or something. Maybe Maybe next time some groundhog day kind of thing but yeah <laughs> but yeah no cool so i want to continue on this transition like you mentioned you did some courses and you um well told yourself some projects can you go in a bit more details like how would you advise or yeah what do what would you do if you were someone who had to start machine learning from scratch what was your experience and what would you advise to other people um, I think so for me, I always, um, I always think that education really can come from anywhere. Um, it really doesn't have to come out of, uh, a, a lecture or a, or a course or anything. It really comes from just you going into, um, Go, going in with the mindset that you are going to pick up information from really any source. And I think especially with a subject like AI, and machine learning, um, both obviously are um, concepts that that uh, deal with the digital world, the digital communication, and 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 uh, and, and so forth. Um, internet is just a great. It, it, it might sound trivial as, as 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 an advice, but but I think it's it's often quite understated that literally you can your all of the knowledge is a Google click away. It's a Google search away. So you can um, you can access that by um, you. Always, always keep uh, um, keep a keep a mental note of uh, if you really are interested in that space. There's really nothing that stops you. There's nothing that says that. But just because you chose civil engineering or or, or any other uh, subject for uh, for that matter, uh, I think I think you also mentioned that you also put it quite well that sometimes actually having a different viewpoint, um, coming from a different background and having a different viewpoint is important for that subject. And so it's really about. Um, um, it's about keeping an open mind um, and and staying and, and and actively searching for the things that you want to learn. Um, and so, on the internet, for instance, there are a, a, a bunch of great um, there are a bunch of great online courses on uh, on machine learning and deep learning. Coursera, you have um, um, Udemy, you have um, 
um, yeah, I, I can't really think of uh, more. I mean, I, for instance, I learned code. Uh, I, can, I learned coding on Python on Code Academy, um, which, where I spent you know a few um, you know a few weeks of my life and just like taking up you know how to um, uh, how to code in Python, get you know, you know fiddle with HTML and CSS as well, like on front end stuff, doing some uh, anything really. Like um, and um, and I think also. Um, there are um, textbooks as well, textbooks and, vi- and 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 YouTube videos explaining certain concepts as well. Um, also, um, are, are great sources of learning. But ultimately, I think it comes down to um, to really want to commit to this this space of AI. Um, um, and if you're not coming from a, a formal background like myself, uh, having done a master's uh, uh, or in machine learning or AI, just just kind of self self teaching yourself. Um, then it's about kind of do get just getting into the uh, just just taking on projects and and uh, um, and I guess we'll touch more upon that um, once um, once we get into my year at, uh, at uh, my year abroad at Berkeley uh, where I actually had a lot of uh, uh, the opportunity to take on um, uh, projects within computer science and deep and, and, and machine learning and uh, device my uh, device my own curriculum uh, into the way into the direction that I wanted to go. Yeah, yeah. Let's let's touch on Berkeley like very soon. But first of all, just wanted to say, and I mean, it's funny we have kind of the same um, background and same kind of career. So I also feel the same as you, like learning by doing some classes online. And I think actually the most important is really doing projects. Like that's really how you can take like one thousand courses. You will learn other things, but in the end, it's when you do a project that you really struggle, that you really look on like online, look at Stack Overflow. That's really, I feel, where I could really learn Python, learn AI, learn machine learning. And every time someone asks me, um, yeah, I want to learn about AI and machine learning. Sure, there are loads of good resources online, which I share with them. But in the end, like you don't need to be an expert, just start by doing a project. And I feel that this can, yeah, I learn most of the things I know by doing projects and maybe less through classes. Although classes are always good, I feel you learn so much more by doing a project. I don't know what you mm-hmm. think. Yeah, for sure, for sure. And I mean, you yourself, I know that you did a year abroad in, in Australia and um, University of Queensland. So I, 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 probably what I, a lot of what I'm saying and what I'm going to say about my year, year abroad is, uh, will resonate with you too. So, uh, yeah. Yeah, so, so tell me about this year abroad. So for people who don't know at... During the final year of our program, we can actually apply for a year abroad and, well, go somewhere else, essentially. And Jan got accepted to Berkeley, which is quite a yeah challenging uni and difficult to get accepted. So, yeah, tell me more about this experience and what did you do here and how did you learn more about AI and data science there? Yeah, um, absolutely. I guess uh, as, as uh, first thing to say is, Probably like once I got there, I really took the chance to take as many computer science related courses as possible. Try to try to <laughs> steer my um, um, the the university so or imperial court, uh, year abroad coordinator and try to convince him that you know no no, no this is civil engineering related. Mm-hmm. Don't worry, this is uh, <laughs> so yeah. It was really the first time I could actually uh, freely choose my classes um, according to my own interest, and and so I took some. I remember I took some uh, data science courses in the uh, in, in the fall semester, and uh, and then some uh, a couple of computer science courses as well. Um, and so, really got in, involved with uh, um, uh, a lot of like there was a lot more Python now, and um, uh, and uh, actually a little bit of C too. Um, uh, and and so I also got involved in group projects um, where we applied. Sort of Machine learning um, and deep learning models for um, for problems, so for I guess for sort of student projects, uh, if you will. So and 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 that's when I kind of like learned how to collaborate with people uh, in this in the space and how to sort of how how to you know how to theorize about uh, what your model is doing and and to come up with um, the best way of the best way of tackling a problem, for instance. So uh, we had for instance a couple of problem um, projects. Dealing with predicting garbage patches in the Pacific Ocean. Uh, another one that dealt with predicting traffic accidents um, using uh, sort of geospatial data. And so there was a, basically a lot of uh, a lot of variety in courses um, 
that that I could take and really sort of and really kind of um, propelled me into deeper into this in, into the sphere of uh, of uh, machine learning and and then and data science. I still really I still at that point hadn't really figured out exactly what I wanted to do, but I I definitely thought what I was doing at the time was really cool, and I wanted to keep on um, doing and going on with it. Um, and yeah, and I think the master's project as well that I um, that I select. So uh, with our year abroad, um, we also have a, a, a master's project, which is a longer kind of uh, dissertation-like project that we're that we're writing up and and, and submitting. Um, um, so one of the requirements for uh, for a master's uh, from, for a master's degree. So I tailored my master's project to uh, have. Uh, as much coding as possible as well. So what I did specifically was I worked with uh, uh, 2D SLAM. Uh, SLAM stands for self-localization and mapping. So um, what we were, um, so the context of this project was to develop an autonomous drone system to detect um, def defects in infrastructure, such as, for instance, cracks in concrete buildings, uh, obstructions on railways, power lines. Etc. So, um, so uh, I dealt with an aspect of that uh, of that project, so which was uh, the slam part. Um, so I built a prototype. Um, unfortunately, not an actual drone. That would be really cool, but I didn't get as far as my <laughs> for my project. But I had a little little a little um, 3D printed box that um, had uh, all of the sensors that a drone would theoretically have. So it would have, um, let's say, like a lidar. Uh, which is a laser rangefinder and a um, uh, an uh, IMU, which is an inertial measurement unit, and so but without the GPS. So the point of SLAM is that uh, it um, you need to devise an algorithm to try to um, estimate um, the position of the drone as well as the map around it at the same time in real time. So. Um, so uh, at that point, um, you have to you you get a bunch of sensor data that you need to um, process it um, on the fly um, through uh, certain models. And so I got into Kalman filters, so which is a linear Gaussian model um, to uh, to perform state updates. Uh, so and you have um, and so really pulled me into a lot more and a lot deeper into um, this uh, these sort of I guess virtual models um, and 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 much more closer into coding. So yeah. It was super super fascinating. Um, Sorry, so so to summarize, to summarize, you you had to develop a drone which and which would detect like issues within a building, for example. So or there is a problem with some concrete here, or there is a problem with the foundation there, and then send an alert or something like that to to the user. Is that is that right? Yeah, so that was, I guess, the scope of the project, the largest, the larger uh, scope of the project. So my particular piece um, of of it was more to do around how to localize the drone, so so okay. that the drone actually doesn't, you know, uh, slam into the building or literally okay. <laughs> slam. Um, but you, uh, but yeah. So there, and there were multiple aspects. For instance, the 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 object recognition, which is which actually was done through a uh, convolutional neural networks, which is something mm -hmm. I work with every day, which is fun. But I didn't do any of that uh, at the time. Um, yeah, there are multiple other aspects, such as the path planning uh, aspect as well, and um, yeah, a bunch of other stuff really. Um, that yeah. was uh, uh, yeah. So, so is it is it to make so first of all you need to make sure your drone doesn't bump into a wall as you mentioned but is it also should the drone understand where it is located in the environment like okay here I'm in the sky on top of the building here I'm on the left of the building is it what you mean by knowing uh, the state or uh, the localization well exactly if you if if the aim is to localize where your cracks are in the building then the first of all the drone needs to know where 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 it is itself okay. and then also need to um localize where the crack is so uh, absolutely the position it's it's all about position and well as they say it's location 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 so and and how do you train such an algorithm like how do you say I mean, you, surely you have some training data and you say, okay, here you're on the left of the building, here you're on the right, but it should be very precise. So how, how do you train those kind of algorithms? So this, was, um, this wasn't per se a machine learning approach. So this is more of a kind of a traditional, um, um, you, are, you, you have a state vector um, that um, contains so the current, the current um, 
uh, uh, you, so you track the position and the velocity of the of the device at that current. So I will say device because it didn't use a drone, but like that, that device, and then you get um, an update from your sensors where uh, it thinks it's heading towards like which direction. So you have two different sensors. You can actually have uh, multiple different sensors that can tell you that, that each can tell you a different thing. And so the question is now, how do you combine this information uh, and, and deal with the uncertainty from each of these, uh, from each of these sensors and to, to get the next best estimate um, of, uh, of the position? And so the challenge of this was really to do this without a GPS because a GPS is, would be quite nice to have, which would give you an, it, would, it wouldn't be perfect, but it would give you a really good absolute reference point um, to where you, uh, where you would be. But it's a, it's a, uh, you, can't, you, you can't expect the GPS to work at all times, um, especially when you carry the drone, when you have the drone um, um, carrying out its work in, uh, in, in you know, in, in spaces where the GPS, for instance, uh, don't reach you, for instance, with okay. large high rises and so on. So uh, those were some of the challenges that we were facing. Okay, cool. So you do your master, well, integrated master at Imperial <laughs> College London. You do your year abroad at Berkeley. And this is where actually you really get into the heart of AI, right? Do loads of projects. You do your master thesis on uh yeah object well object detection and i mean mostly path path recognition and yeah. that's how you actually start to i guess that's how you actually realize that okay i want to get into this world i want to start working and yeah join the world of data and ai and so you actually start applying for jobs the problem is you have a master in civil engineering, you don't have any AI or data science master, you don't have any PhD. I personally did a master. Um, so that this is where I guess our careers are slightly different. I did a master, but mm -hmm. you didn't. So how challenging was this to find a job in AI when you come from a civil engineering background, you have no master, no PhD? Uh, yeah, <laughs> I, I definitely uh, think Looking back, I definitely think of myself as having the, probably one of the more unconventional paths um, <laughs> into AI. I, as you said, I didn't have a formal degree uh, in machine learning or, or AI. I guess uh, for me, it was just uh, at the point, just interest and genuine curiosity. I um, I knew kind of at some point um, during my degree that I didn't want to do civil engineering. Um, and I mean, all, it, it just it just uh, all credit to the subject. Uh, I mean, I think I think it's. Uh, it's it's a fantastic it's a fantastic line of work. I but um, I tried an internship out um, one summer and I, I just felt it wasn't really my cup of tea. Um, so and again, it was really the coding aspect that really pulled me that that evoked something um, a specific interest in me. So I guess at the time of me finishing that degree, um, I uh, I guess I I I, I was in a position where. <laughs> I really wanted to take on sort of any coding job that I could get uh, onto. So I think um, you know, I, I, I shot off applications everywhere out on LinkedIn and Glassdoor. Um, I, uh, I interviewed for a couple of IT consulting jobs. Uh, I got offers from a couple of them, but um, you know, relatively low-paying jobs, uh, specifically if you're you know talking about London salary in, in, in tech. Um, but I, 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 I was. At that point, I was literally ready to take anything. You know, I just wanted to have somewhere to start, um, to start off with, and then progress, kind of like throughout uh, throughout my career uh, into a space that I uh, a place that I wanted to be. And so, uh, I did consider also doing a master's degree, like yourself, in computing. I figured out that at that point, I was uh, I kind of just wanted to get going with work, to mm -hmm. see if I you know liked it at that point. You know, I, I think. I, yeah, I probably would would say I had a little bit of a mini existential crisis at that point, and uh, um, so. But yeah, I I I think you know I I sent off a, um, CVs everywhere, uh, including. Um, um, I, I should also maybe mention I took um, at the same time also like I following the uh, following the kind of advice that I I gave I I, I took all the online courses I could uh, I could find. Um, you know, I followed up with um, uh, some computer sciences courses from uh, from Berkeley. Uh, I did 
um, uh, a lot of the Coursera, uh, the Coursera courses on deep mm-hmm. learning and machine learning. Um, I um, I uploaded my uh, the code of past projects on on GitHub on my GitHub and uh, linked it in my CV, and um, um, and I think that actually is what um, what was a very important element um, because then. Um, so I get one day I get a phone call uh, from uh, from Arsalan Zafar, so one of the co-founders of a company that I just applied to called DeepRender. Um, he asks me to come in for a meeting, um, and they give me the uh, initial pitch. They just received seed funding, and uh, we're now just we're about to take on our first employees. And uh, and so, you know, um, yeah, come join us to do this to to reinvent compression. And so. Yeah, I think I think definitely. I think at that point they also mentioned that they had seen my um, they had seen my GitHub repository and was quite impressed with it. So uh, impressed with the coding quality. So I definitely think that really was the one thing that sort of proved that um, that I was capable of of, of doing the job. Um, and so yeah, I um, I prepared a lot for the second stage uh, interview, which was uh, an assignment, uh, both a theoretical and a practical with coding. So I prepared every day for it. I think I, I just went all in for the job. They, they gave me the prospect of this new revolutionary idea that, uh, that involved, uh, deep learning. So, and, and I just figured, okay, this is it. This is the big break. This is like the business model, um, makes sense. You know, it, it, it holds up and here they are like looking for, um, uh, looking for you know the first employees and they don't seem like madmen uh, <laughs> so I just went all in for this job uh, prepared for it and um, yeah and uh, and uh, I walk in on my second stage interview and it um, I'm not gonna I don't I, 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 I since I am here I'm not gonna say that I botched it but it didn't really go very well <laughs> I think I screwed up most of the theoretical part um, kind of signifying that I didn't actually have that uh, it's a really tough job. Though. It's a really tough subject to, uh, I guess, in my in my sort of self defense. But um, but yeah, it's it, it really didn't go uh, quite as uh, quite as intended in the theoretical aspect. But then they kind of we did the practical part, and then um, they thought I was pretty good at coding, so just ended up taking me really. And um, so yeah, <laughs> I guess on in summary, where my journey had been there it was that it was I guess it was sort of you know I think. Normally, they say sort of half persistence, half luck. I think for me, myself, it was probably a bit more luck since um, there was just this job that was um, that was in a position to take on people like me, people who uh, didn't necessarily have a lot of uh, a lot of credentials to back up it for, but just someone who uh, would just know how to do the job. So uh, I think I ended up like roughly. I think maybe that saved me two to three years of of time of of progressing in my career up to this point so i i think i was extremely lucky that um i managed to save save in on this time cool um, now, yeah. now you're senior machine learning engineer so we can see that you've done well and that they were actually right to hire you maybe you didn't get as lucky as you think but i think you mentioned an interesting point on having the project on github and i spoke with nixon a couple of episodes ago, he wrote a book on Ace the Data Science Interview. And he said something, well, in the book or when we talk, I don't remember exactly, but he said that a project without a link is like a project that doesn't exist. Like you can have 10 projects if you don't share them anywhere, don't put them on GitHub, don't share a link in your CV. This project doesn't exist. And yes, sure, you can talk about it, but will yeah. people believe you? We don't know. So I think that's a great advice to put things on GitLab, on GitLab or GitHub, share them in in your CV. Do you, because yeah. actually this helped you get the job, right? I, I do think I do really want to emphasize that point because at the end of the day, uh, what we are doing eighty percent of the time is a coding, and, and everything or every everything every output that we uh, that um, that we produce is based mm-hmm. on the quality of our code and um and and having that code available um really says so much about uh, a candidate in terms of the, the way that they code and like what types of you know uh, what type of of algorithms that they use in order to you know do they do this thing with a naive for loop or do they vectorize things mm-hmm. um 
and 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 so you can you can get a lot of the way that the pe- that the person is thinking by just looking at their code and i think it's just so so important so i guess first of all like brush you know make sure that your coding skills are up to uh to to that standard that is necessary for the job and then the second of all is so important to just document it document it comment it with doc strings and comments you know really really be yeah super careful with um, making sure that whoever reads the code should understand exactly why the code is written in a certain way. So absolutely, I can't stress that enough. Cool. So that's how you essentially transition to deep render. And now you're still currently, as I mentioned, working there. So let's dive into this. Like, first of all, what is deep render? You mentioned something around video compression, but what is it exactly? What is the company doing in yeah, a high level view essentially? Yeah, so um, deep render, um, what we're doing here is we're currently developing the next generation's uh, media compression algorithms using uh, uh, neural networks. So, and, and media, uh, what, what kind of media are we focusing on? Well, mainly image and videos. Um, and uh, I guess I will go in a little bit later on in terms of like why that is important, but. Uh, it's a yeah, it's a it's a it's a startup right now that was founded in 2017, uh, which was roughly where sort of AI-based um, uh, media compression uh, kicked off in the research domain. So um, the founders, um, the two founders, Christian and Aslan, they saw the, com- the commercial potential of it um, uh, around the same time and and started up the project and um, sort of started uh, yeah started up the the, the company. I mean. And then they, uh, 2019, uh, as I mentioned, they, they received the seed funding and started to take on more hires and uh, engineers and scientists. And today we're, uh, we're a group of 17 people um, who are all uh, mostly, or most, most of all are, uh, of us are research oriented. So it's, it's, it's really just a kind of, I, I like to think of research, um, uh, a, a research uh, startup or a think tank almost that, um, focuses on one um specific um topic which is which is how do we how do we solve the problem with compression um and um and yeah so what i do there first uh, so i started out as one of the uh three research engineers uh, and um so uh, the first ones in the company uh i guess in a in a nutshell what i do is uh um we come up with with, with a lot of uh, with lots of ideas during our brainstorming sessions, and that which includes uh, both the engineers and the scientists, um, come up with experiments that we need to uh, to kick off and models to train. And so we code up these deep learning architectures, uh, so these neural networks, and then we train them um, for uh, for 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 a few. Uh, for, for yeah, a few days basically. Um, it's quite large networks, and then so and then at the end of that, we collect the results and we analyze them and discuss their implications and write up internal documentation. That's kind of like what we sort of on paper do. Uh, but I would say since it's a startup, um, and at the time was a, a, a very small one, I remember like my job task was so different um, from from day to day. Like one day, I did a research sprint digging into you know a, a kind of um, uh, looking into a particular topic of compression and, and how to improve it. Uh, another day, I was uh, write, writing a patent. Um, a third day, I was building workstations. Um, and fourth day, producing data sets or benchmarking our performance. So really varied uh, throughout day to day. They kind of like throw threw me into uh, <laughs> any sort of task uh, uh, onto me that um, that I was willing to do. And so and 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 um, and yeah. And so I guess as the team grew. Um, I got more and more responsibility. Um, and so I was promoted after my first year um, to a senior uh, research engineer, and uh, uh, which entailed doing a lot more uh, supervising roles. So I had a team as well um, that uh, I was supervising um, and uh, got more involved in the onboarding process of new recruits and, and also with interviews. So um, yeah, ultimately now, now in a position where I um, have, um, got more and more ownership of the final pipeline uh, re- responsible for making sure that it trains the full pipeline trains as intended and we get the results that we want. Why, like you mentioned this video compression using AI, but can you maybe explain why this is such a big problem? Why is video compression such, well, 
so important and why do we want to compress videos like what's what's the goal here what are you trying to achieve for sure um so maybe we can start with the idea of compression so um and 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 i think really the the main um uh, to to start off like with compression at, in 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 specifically for images so you've heard you've all heard of jpeg png G, um uh, gifs and etc you know all of these um type of files these file extensions that you sometimes see on your on your laptop on your computer and these are all compression algorithms specifically for those that deal with uh, with images so i'll start with images because uh, as 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 we know videos right now is just a stream of images so it's just uh, the uh, next i guess uh, this next layer of complexity there but really the principle of um an image compression algorithm is to um reduce the file size for the digital representation of that image without impacting or degrading the quality of that data and so because everything in the digital world is represented in bits um what we if what we eventually want is a bit stream of zeros and ones that contain the information of that image whilst keeping that bit stream as short as possible so i guess a very intuitive example super dumbed down I, you can imagine you have an image of a blue sky um and let's say like a cloud in the middle somewhere so instead of kind of representing them in terms of pixels uh each pixel saying blue 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 cloud 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 blue 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 for each pixel on and on you know we can say start with blue repeat for x number of pixels and then you have cloud for y number of pixels and then z, uh, a blue again for z number of pixels so this representation of that same image is much more compressed than having everything stored in its raw format and that's uh, effectively what we're trying to do so um and so sorry, the, sorry uh, just to interrupt you why why do you want this compression in the first instance like what what's the goal i mean i i get it you get more information but why why do you want this compression what why would it be useful yeah so um so compression today is kind of um i th i think of it as sort of uh it's almost the invisible glue that keeps everything together in the uh um internet age of today and so um i will throw out some some statistics then um uh, around kind of what the have a sort of um what we're dealing with the problem the, the the scale of the problem that we're dealing with uh, so actually today um we are uh the uh the, the we have 85% of the internet traffic consisting of visual media and that is images and video so we the 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 largest portion of of information being transmitted across our network systems are all um are just are just video um and and most of that is, is, is streaming services like netflix and youtube and so on and so um and and uh, thinking about the average compression ratio we have today um that is um 20x for images and roughly 250x for video that means and these are compression ratios um which which basically express how how much compression how much are we actually compressing it um uh against a raw format so for you can you can think of the, these numbers as being quite large but basically it underpins the way that we use our network uh our network system today in in a absolutely in a staggering um uh, in a staggering um magnitude and so this and what's scary is that this 85% uh, this number is consistently rising so only in in um, in recent years you know the quality of of the the streamed video um has gone up significantly i mean i i like to always use the example of thinking of uh, uh if if you if you watch a youtube video um that was posted 10 years ago you mean you can you can barely see anything in it like it's it, it's very rare to encounter anything that was filmed that was uh um that was stored in in a larger resolution than 360p you know and so it's um to us like the the way that the standard that we are used to it looks like it's been filmed you know by by a toaster and uh, and so the <laughs> today the, the content creation and delivery services uh like you know like amazon prime disney plus netflix um all of them are expected to deliver the high resolution content you know we're talking 4k uh 60 and 60 fps um we have emerging technologies today such as vr and all of these things really sets a new standard and uh new precedents on the quality 
of um, the content that people expect. And so people often fail to realize that there is a physical uh, limitation on the bandwidth infrastructure that we have today. And uh, and I think the recent pandemic has been a perfect example of this. Uh, the amount of internet that we've used um, in 2020 more, more than doubled in the UK compared to the previous year. And so... We've, and we've also seen the the effects of the capacity not being and uh, not meeting the demand. Most of us exp- ex- has experienced, you know, working from home. If you work from home, you've seen uh, uh, connection issues during Zoom calls. Um, you, when you try to stream something from Netflix, there's been annoying buffering at certain times. You know, especially during evenings when there's a lot of uh, of, of network demand at that point. Um, and uh, if you're into gaming and or live sports streaming, you've certainly experienced lagging in the connection. And so, uh, and, and all of this really puts a huge strain on broadband providers, and which incurs huge costs for dealing with these network traffic surges. And, mm-hmm. and so we're talking about costs of several hundred millions of pounds. Um, and so let's say now that you have improved compression by 50%. Well, then... For so I, that what that means is that for the same visual quality of the data of the of the of the videos um, that you deliver to the end users, you reduce that data load by fifty percent. We could save broadband providers hundreds of millions of pounds every year. And so, and 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 what it also would mean is that content would be delivered um, at faster rates to your homes, with, which means uh, fewer interruptions, less buffering, increased productivity. And um, all of this is really, um, in, in my opinion, sort of even taken for granted. I think a lot of us don't kind of realize what's happening under the hood. And, and what's happening under the hood is pretty cool, actually. Um, and, and so, um, you know, that, that all of the compression has really kept us together for such, for such a long time. Um, and, and what's more is that, you know, the reduction in the uh, bandwidth and the actual bandwidth use could also enable delivery of um, higher quality content to remote locations, which don't necessarily have access to high-speed internet services. Uh, I mean, of course, better compression means uh, less storage spaces, for, uh, which is quite valuable, I think, to have for cloud servers. Uh, this also has immediate knock-on effects for the electricity consumption of um, service and internet service providers uh drastically reducing you know the the uh, the impact on, on climate change uh due to the technology that we that we invent so i mean i guess um yeah i mean in summary really for and i guess for the listeners who are into pop culture and especially the hbo tv shows yes we're pretty much like pipe piper in silicon valley if you've <laughs> seen the show but yeah um yeah that's no, i think, I think that's, yeah. that's interesting because you I mean, when you're using your laptop, you're just watching a YouTube video or something like that, and you don't really think about, okay, how much, I don't know, information does this use? How does your laptop work? And things like that. But actually, I guess it's quite complex. Under the hood, you want to optimize the space that this video takes on whatever. I'm not very familiar with this problem, but yeah, basically compress the video as much as you can so that you don't need to send too much information to each laptop or things like that. So yeah, I guess that's like, if you just think about YouTube, that's already like a huge market, but it's not just YouTube. It's even bigger than that, I guess, because yeah, calls uh, like Zoom calls use videos. I mean, images, even in Google use, right. The same Algorithm. If this Zoom call freezes between you and me, then you know you know you know what the problem is. Then um, <laughs> then I need to go back to work. <laughs> cool. So yeah, I think the problem is quite clear. And yeah, I see. Basically, the goal is to compress an image. But can you maybe dive into like where AI plays on plays a role there? Like, why do we need AI to compress this image? For sure. Um, so. We need to talk about uh, just quickly around traditional compression. What, what I mean by traditional compression is um, really fundamentally the sort of uh, the, the, um, the type of algorithms that are employed today. So, what do we use today? Um, we're actually using compression algorithms that are founded in ideas that emerged in the seventies, and and that idea uh, really underpins the way that JPEG works. And so. Um, 
you know, and 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 so JPEG is now is a standard, is a is a compression standard that has existed since the, since the 90s. It's uh, you know, um, again, all credits to that. It's a it's a it's it's a quite a, a clever. It was quite a clever method back then, um, and it's worked quite well. Um, and and people the, the video codecs that um, uh, that were developed in the uh, in the 90s and the the noughties, um based on that technology and uh, we've seen a, a good increase in the uh, in the compression ratios um, from that technology but now the main problem with that um, with with those type of um, uh, of algorithms is that they're they are experiencing and diminishing returns in the uh, in their improvement, mm-hmm. and so we have um, so the 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 newest the the, the newest um, codecs that are out there that have come out in the in the last decade have been marg- have only been marginally better than the the previous generations codecs, and so you have this this drastic uh, you have this drastic um, um, you know, uh, slow down in the development mm-hmm. of um, of old of this old traditional pi- uh, compression pipeline. Uh, whilst at the same time, on the demand side, now you have exponential growth in the data, and so these two combined mm-hmm. together um, equals absolute disaster for <laughs> our network, our our, our bandwidth. Uh, um, uh, you know, our, the bandwidth of the future. So what? Um, what AI does, which is really good, um, which is which is quite interesting, um, is to completely reinvent the way the compression is done. So um, you have these traditional codecs that um, are mainly handcrafted, very hardcore engineered. Um, you know, the, they are the, the people who have been tweaking numbers here and there, um, and, and then assessed how that impacts the pipeline. Um, and 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 really been working mainly with something that we call linear transforms. So linear transforms is a class of transformation that only deals with linear operations. And so, um, and so, what AI codecs um, can do that the traditional codecs cannot is to approach this through a uh, an end to end pipeline. And so, what what we mean by end to end is to optimize it through gradient descent um, through a data driven approach. And uh, um, what this means is that we have, uh, and, and we also know that neural networks are nonlinear. So they use activation functions which, which introduce nonlinearities in the, uh, in, in the function space that we're, that we're in. And so it's a, um, and, and since you're training it end-to-end, which means you can optimize it through, through, uh, with gradient descent, everything gets tuned um, at the same time. So you have the encoder module um, and the decoder module that, Understands what it, they need from each other. They they send they have the gradient signals that through that that backpropagate throughout both modules, um, as well as the probability model that you impose on on it. And so it's it's um, it's much more flexible in that sense, and and really can be uh, approached through a complete data driven approach. Sorry, can you just describe on a high level, like without any mathematical explanation, what's the encoder, what's the decoder, like how, how does it work essentially? Sure. So our compression model um, is, in as a backbone, um, an, an autoencoder. And so an autoencoder is a type of neural network that is trained to output the exact same input. So it often consists of an encoder module, which is uh, a neural network as well, that downsamples the input, which can be an image or a video, mm-hmm. into a uh, into an, a smaller representation, which we call a bottleneck space. We also call this a latent vector. And this, this, this small representation is often more compressible um, than the original data. So this is effectively the, the 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 part that we would send out as a bit stream to between between the uh, um, the users of the algorithm, and then you have the decoder module, which is again a neural network that takes in this latent vector, uh, and then outputs a reconstruction of the image. Okay. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. And so you want, so you have an image, you compress it into some kind of smaller image or smaller information vector or matrix or whatever and then you have the decoder which takes this 
kind of smaller data storage thing, like smaller image or smaller information matrix, and decodes it to try to get back the original image, but with less information, essentially. Yes. Or where, let's say with less information that is required to represent that data. Mm-hmm. So, um, so it's uh, it's there's a lot of mathematics that <laughs> that mm-hmm. goes around goes on here, and 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 it was quite a it was quite overwhelming to begin with. But uh, it's it's a it's it's a fundamentally in 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 its fundamental principles, it's um it's it's um. Um, everything is based on fundamental principles on information theory and uh, and probability theory. So um, and, uh, uh, and 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 it takes a, quite a lot of time to get your head around it. But it's really cool once you have the overarching picture of how exactly it's working, both sort of like how it used to work in the traditional space and now in the AI space. It's really cool to kind of like draw those connections and see kind of exactly how it's doing um, the things that you want it to do. So, and I should also mention one of the cool things is actually that um, I guess according to, according to a lot of the guests that you've had, a lot of people have been emphasizing the the role of data. Um, you need, you know, good data. You need accurate, clean data. Someone needs to, uh, someone needs like the, the 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 hours. You know, the the eighty the the eighty percent that it does that that machine learning is about is just to get the data clean. You know, get it from a clean source and all that. Um, we don't have any of those issues, and we're very very lucky for that because I think the problem is quite hard enough as it is. I mean, what we are doing is essentially compressing the images that are out. Um, you know that that exists in the in in the digital in the digital world. So we'll, we just scrape some images together and then basically um, say and then call it a day. So so the focus is on the algorithm there compared to you don't need to worry too much. You've got loads of data which is of good quality. So you're really focusing a lot on this algorithm and making the compression as good as it can be to well, minimize the information that you're going to send to users, essentially, and make streaming mm-hmm. more efficient and everything you mentioned earlier. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's all about the, um, the, uh, the um, yeah, it's all about the algorithms, really, and, and how to deal with the big problems of uh, dealing with high dimensionalities and, and the probability spaces and that's um, for those type of problems. Um and maybe I'll just quickly allude to one of the things around why AI might help so much with um, um, with with uh, com- uh, task like compression, and that is that you know our brains are also neural networks, and every second, every 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 fraction of a second, we take in so much information through our mm-hmm. through our eyes that amount to several gigabytes per second, um, and uh, and somehow our brains is able to compute all of that complexity and compress that into something that is some something that is smaller we know that because we obviously have limited capacity in our brains and so somehow our brains are actually performing really really well at the job of compression throughout i guess evolution and so that's why you have having a, a compression model that is powered by ai um, seems like the obvious choice um, mm-hmm. for to to device as a system um, Okay. In this in this regime, okay, I see. So, where, where where are you now in terms of the startup? Are you like currently? Do you have the algorithm and it's ready to be sent? I don't know. Or are you still developing it? Like, at which stage of this research are you? Are you just at the beginning of the research, trying to find which algorithm will work best? Um, we are at, a, I guess, a, a stage where we are. Uh, looking to commercialize so we have right now a state-of-the-art uh, uh, image pipeline that's uh, that is that can run in real time and we are uh, ready to uh, uh, and um, which which uh, could be deployed uh, really uh, right now and uh, uh, so the next step that we're doing is that we're working with uh, or with the current step I should say is that we're working with the video uh, with a video compression pipelines that really is this this same idea, but you're just adding the temporal component on it, and so uh, so that increases the complexity and the problem a little bit, but not in the solution. So in this, uh, um, the same the same principles apply as mm-hmm. for the 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 as the image pipeline, um, and so you're just working with a slightly larger complexity um, 
data really that's uh but but obviously the same the same things apply there the same rules apply and so the uh and and we're quite excited for that stage as well because obviously that's where the real money exists okay cool no cool that's very interesting and yeah the startup looks really cool the problem looks challenging so glad to hear that you're enjoying it let's maybe finish the episode with two questions on your career the first one is Since you've done this transition from engineering to data and AI, what is really like? What do you like so much about AI and machine learning? Why why choosing this field? Um, yeah, I think it's it's. Um, I think there's so much potential to um, come up with radical and revolutionizing um, ideas and processes in. And in, 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 in what's really cool about uh, about is that AI and 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 computer vision that I work with, um, there's still the, the the question is not really um, how how to do it any longer, but where can we do it? And so I think there's so many there's so many hidden um, hidden places on which you can apply AI onto. And I say, I mean, I say this, for instance, coming from working with compression, which um, AI-based compression really started out as a concept in, uh, um, in, in 2017. So when the first research papers started to come out and that's when DeepRender was founded. And previous to that, I mean, I guess people who were really into the, 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 the space knew that it could be applied to compression, but it really took out that the commercial prospect of that really took off around that time. And so, um, and I think there still are, Uh, an abundance of low-hanging fruits in the space there to um, um, to uh, where where AI can take a place and um, um, yeah I think it's um, it's it's quite it's it's um, it, it's got quite a lot of potential and uh, uh, and and being in there I think I think it's cool that you have just to there's a lot more thinking that needs to be done um rather than doing particularly it's just about it's 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 ultimately about observing the needs and demands of society and thinking about how we can apply the this this new set of tools that are presented to us that really kind of emerged from the in, in the latest uh, in the latest few years And, uh, and and find a way to apply them. And that that, does, that obviously doesn't mean that you should just you know try you know and and stick AI into everything. That's not that's I think I'm I'm very much an uh, uh, an opponent of that idea of that uh, of of that idea. But it's it's more about really thinking about in in in, in the, um, theoretically where it makes sense to apply these models. Yeah, cool. I think that makes sense. I also like the fact that, as you mentioned, it's very new. So there are lots of things that you can explore. Um, you, there are still lots of things that no one has done. And so lots of new ideas that, that are coming up every year or even every month. You always get surprised by some papers or things like that, which I think makes it very interesting compared to maybe engineering where things are more well-defined. Obviously, you always have research, but there are some things that's have been there for well hundreds of years and are here to stay whereas in ai it keeps evolving all the time which is what kind of really excites me mm, for sure cool so let's finish this episode with one advice like if you just had one advice for someone to progress in their career what would it be so i would say um remembering that we're humans We are neural networks. We're all neural networks, whether you like it or not. We always have a brain. So um, just as neural networks have two different modes, um, one is the training mode, um, which is where the neural network is taking in new inputs and updating its weights, and the inference mode where it is just doing things. I like to say we should, all, we should try to focus a lot more on the training We should try to get our our neural networks to be more in the training mode and keep learning. Always be learning something new. Always update your weights. Um, it's uh, it, it really is the the the, the uh, development really stops once you 
start getting into that evaluation stage and keep doing the same thing over and over again without actually improving. So I would say, you know, every day, if you have some time, um, learn something new, something that you've always wanted to know about. Um, Google that thing that you've been uh, asking yourself how it works. Um, you know, ask, ask you a few questions, questions that you haven't asked before or, or, you know, turn things upside down. What happens if you, if you change this for this and so on. And so really just keep an open mind and, 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 um, yeah, stay, uh, stay informed and, uh, keen to learn more. Thanks. Yeah. And thanks a lot for this. And yeah, thanks for the episode. It was great to catch up with you. I will see you soon in London, but yeah, thanks a lot. Have a good evening and hope to see you very soon cool thanks neil thank you bye